Hello, welcome back, or welcome to Hey Entertain Me, episode number two. I'm your host, Tom Harper. I know it's been a minute since that pilot episode, episode number one, and I am sorry that it took so long, but I think that the wait was well worth it. I wanted to, uh, I think my ego wanted to prove to you guys that I could get somebody that's super interesting for a guest that maybe you have heard of maybe you haven't heard of it kind of depends on what you do if you are into the sport of disc golf at all there's a really really good chance you have heard of the man i am going to talk to here in a minute um well, hell, his name's in the title, so I'll just give it to you. I'm talking with disc golf world champion Scott Stokely on today's episode. Um, I talked to Scott on a, what was it, Monday night? Yeah, Monday night. I talked to Scott on Monday night, so it would have been August 22nd. Um, he was gracious enough to give me a huge chunk of his time. I did not expect an hour and a half plus with uh, Scott Stokely, but he is a not only a magnificent disc golfer, but a great storyteller. And he's all he I, I wrote this down on my show notes while we were doing the show. All about doing good things, Scott Stokely. Because the dude is, he really just, he's all about doing good things, helping communities all over the country, and the work that he does with special needs children, with his blue power, is fantastic, and you will totally hear about that later into the show. We start at the beginning with Scott, with his life and how he grew up, which is insanely interesting i was very surprised to hear his brief growing up story and then we get into the uh the nitty-gritty of the disc golf and what it was like to win titles and break records and break his own record and i just i for a second episode i think i will have made you guys proud if you're into disc golf you'll super like it if you're not into disc golf there's a lot of stories that aren't about disc golf as well, so you've got something to listen to, and it really just might make you want to go out and throw after this. So, thanks for listening. Hey, entertain me. Hit me up on Twitter at Hey Entertain Me. Visit us at www.podcastempirenetwork.com, and here you go, episode two of Hey Entertain Me with disc golf legend, and as I like to say, OG. And not for original gangster, original golfer, Scott, all about good things, Stokely. I am here with Scott Stokely. Scott, welcome to Hey Entertain Me. For those of you that don't know, Scott is a world champ disc golfer. Um, if you're into disc golf at all, chances are his name has, you've read his name somewhere. You've heard of him. I mean, the guy's got monster throws. Holds world records for him. It's he's got a he, he's just led an amazing life, and I'm so pumped to talk to him. Thanks for coming to the show, man. Thank you. Except that most of those things you said that I have are actually in the past tense. I'm 46 now, and uh, 
I'm now reliving my old glory days, kind of like someone who was a real successful high school football player. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> but, wrong with that. <laughs> hey, I, I, you know, why not? I mean, why? who wants to, to uh, face reality when you can cling to the past? Awesome. I, why? Let's uh, let's start from the beginning a little bit. Why don't you give us a quick uh, quick intro to Scott Stokely? Like, where are you from, and where'd you go to school? What kind of kid were you? What'd you do? <laughs> uh, sure, I I grew up in Los Angeles. I was a um, I was a really annoying uh, child prodigy slash punk rock kid, and I uh, I uh, I, te- I basically tested out of high school when I was. But they made me stay until I was 15 before they could officially let me out. Um, and I was, I was a, <laughs> I don't know if, if I, if I, if I was my kid, I, I would probably smack me around for it. I, I mean, I was a little arrogant punk. But, um, but I basically dropped out of high school when I was 15 to, to play disc golf every day, and um, with no regrets, I'd like to point out. And. Uh, that went for like five years and then I went to college for a few semesters and then I had decided that, um, well, actually, to leave, you're talking about careers that actually relate to this. So the short of it is I was working at, at Kinko's going to college my third semester and I was having a conversation with my boss where I was begging him and pleading with him for a day off that I had already earned like a month away to date for a tournament. And I just had this epiphany when I was talking to him. I still remember, like, I can still visualize his office where I was talking to him and it just hit me that if I graduate college, I'm going to be doing this exact same thing in in 10 years, just I'll be being paid a lot more money for it. Right. Um, but that's when I, like, I, I decided, I, I didn't quit that day. I had rent and stuff too, right? But I I, uh, I decided that day that I was not going to, to be that, uh, I was never going to live that life. And so I dropped out of school and went on tour. Back wow. before anybody toured. <laughs> <laughs> so... That, wow, that's incredible. Where did you first pick up the disc? Where, where was your first drive at? Do you remember? Well, yeah, I was. Uh, I, I grew up, um, I fortunately grew up next to Oak Grove Park, which is the, the world's first the original. golf course. Uh, what? The original, I said. Yeah, the very original. Actually, do you mind little like anecdotes, like that kind of what this is about? Yeah, definitely. It's all about stories, man. It's just tell your story. All right, so, okay. I will throw stories as they come up. So anyway, the Oak Grove Park was the world's first disc golf course. The course was put in in 1975 by Ed Hedrick. And everybody that, you know, in disc golf knows that this is the world's first disc golf course. It's a, it's a historical landmark for our community. So um, last year I was in Huntsville, Alabama at Brom Springs Disc Golf Course. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the course, I was running an event out there. I get to the course and there's, there's a big sign, not a little sign, but a huge sign Right by hole one of the course that says Bomb Springs, world's first disc golf course. Oh, <laughs> right. And I was like, I'm like, wow, that's that's kind of weird. So when the, uh, the the president of the local club shows up, and uh, I was getting ready to debate him on the topic because I'm I was I was there. I'm old, right? And I uh, I told him I said, hey, you know that this that Bomb Springs is not the world's first disc golf course. And his exact words was uh, was Yeah, we know. We don't care. <laughs> Wow. Like, I couldn't even, <laughs> I, 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 like, I, I, I couldn't even argue with them. Like, yeah, what the of that, it was like, it was brilliant. I, I love stuff like that. And I was like, I was like, I, I give you my thumbs up. I fully approve. <laughs> wow. You said 
dropped out of school at 15 just to play disc golf. So that was pretty much like from the beginning, you knew that was, that was what you were going to do. That was your thing. Disc golf all the way. Well, I, I mean, when I, from the time I was 12, basically my mom would drop me off at school. I'd go to my locker. I'd put my books in, pull out my golf bag, walk across the street to this golf course, play disc golf all day awesome, at yeah. three o'clock. I would go back to school. I would put my discs back in my locker or something, you know, something like this back in my locker, grab my back. I'd go out. My mom would pick me up, drive me home. And as soon as I got home, I would grab my other golf bag, go back to the course and play the dark. <laughs> um, that I did that every, I mean, virtually every single day. Um, you know, thank God LA schools don't really pay attention to students much. <laughs> they didn't seem to notice or care. Wow. Or if they did, they didn't make, they didn't make a really big stink out of it. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that's what I did. So yeah, that's what that was the, my absolute love and my absolute passion from the day I threw a disc. Wow. How old were you when you actually ended up uh, PDGA pro? Like when you were actual pro? Um, yeah. Well, actually, I I finished third place as a in the pro division at a, at a major disc golf tournament in 1985 when I was 15. Okay. Um. So I I was I mean I was considered a one of the young up and coming you know players um but i mean in hindsight now is you know i was able to do that like out of that wouldn't have happened today i mean i i was able to do that because the best players in the sport had been playing only five years so i you know you, you could do things back then the sport was so new um the talent pool was so much more shallow than it is today so it's a little bit you know i'm proud of it but it's a little bit I mean, that's the reality. I mean, it, you know, I probably, if, if you follow PDJ ratings, I, I'm going to bet I probably shot thousand rated rounds or something or thousand ten or something like that. Nothing like people are shooting today, but back then that was probably good enough. Well, yeah, definitely. Being a disc golfer from, like you said, 1985 and then coming back to the sport in 2014, what's the biggest difference that you've noticed like between players and their style of play like has it has it evolved to something totally different or is it pretty much what you expected being around from the beginning no you know what it's like it, it actually is funny it, it parallels um mixed martial arts in a sense if you follow mma and i guess you have an audience of not disc golfers so i'm kind of like make analogies that, that, that non-disc golfers understand like in mixed martial arts you used to be able to specialize you could excel at one area, and if you're enough at that one area, you could excel by being very good at that area. And that's the way it was back back in the day. There, there were finesse players. There were guys who were just awful putters, but they were really good. They could they could throw far or something. And you can't even come close to competing nowadays if you don't have every skill. It'd be like a, a guy in the PGA Tour who's like really great with the woods, but you know his iron game isn't very good. Okay. That guy's not on the tour. I mean, like you can't compete nowadays. People are the players are so athletic now. Um, you know, when I started playing, it was it was uh, what, what's that? What's the uh, the island of, of misfit toys or something like that? Right? I mean, our sport was made up of, of misfits. I mean, the, the coolest people in the world, the people I'm closest to to this day, but it wasn't a whole lot of like real athletes coming into the sport, yeah. and that's changed. There's guys now that are you know, choosing to, to go out on tour rather than play triple A baseball, you know, or, or that, you know, that, that level of athlete. And so it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved, I, I, which is great. I mean, I'm glad. Wow. That's, 
that's cool because, like I said, you you've been there for in at two different times to watch this go down. So, I mean, if anybody's got the answers for this kind of stuff, I feel like it's you because you've been around and throwing with the best of them forever now. Let's talk about uh, Blue Power and what you do with that organization you've got going. Sure. Um, what I've been doing with Blue Power, uh, it's, it's so exciting. Um, in the past, up until recently, because I've actually made changes to my formatting, but I've, I've traveled to 250 cities and um, been able to run or offer, I should say, 250 classes for players, uh, not players, but for, for kids or adults with special needs, uh, with autism, Down syndrome, blind, deaf, paraplegic, EP, ADHD, yeah. um, kid or adult. Um, at the beginning, it was, you know, it was hit or miss. I mean, I, I had events where I showed up and not a single special needs player came out. And um, over time, it's progressively gotten better. I mean, it's still hit or miss in this community, depending on the weather, or how much, how successful the promotions are. But I've gone to 250 cities and offered this, and it's definitely been growing over time. Um, that's been the core of what I'm, um, have been able to do. And it's, I'm just, I'm so incredibly passionate about it. I love my special needs peeps. Um, I, I, and I say this in the, the most loving way possible. I love how, I love people who are unique. And I, I mean, the word weird is the biggest compliment in the world to me. And nice. uh, I love the people of the special needs community because everybody is so unique. And that to me is, makes them far more interesting than the cookie cutter people next door. That's, so that's been my that's my thing. I love them. That's really great, man. So you do these clinics with the special needs kids, and you uh, so do you actually go through and play golf, like do not shoot nine or whatever, go through the motions and do everything? No, what I do is uh, well, the first thing I should say that the, all the classes, if you happen to hear about a class someone you use, they're one hundred percent free. Mm-hmm. Um, I never charge anyone a penny for this. Um, and every, the, the, the special needs uh, players who come out get a disc in a shirt just for showing up completely free. Um, I've been able to fund that through, I don't, I don't really do donations, but I've been able to fund this by running a round of doubles after the event where you pay 27 bucks, but you get a disc, a shirt, you get doubles and you get a pro clinic for 27 bucks. Nice. Uh, so for the people that want to come out and support what I do, yeah, no, no one's like handing me money and people have thought of like, well, I'm giving money to be donated to autism awareness organizations or something directly like that. And that's not, that has never been the case. It's been, do you, do you want to support what I'm doing to allow me to go to towns and do all this stuff for free for the special needs community? I, I have done some fundraisers. I've given thousands of dollars, like in, in to organ, different organizations, but most of what I do, I'm funding my ability to come to town and run these events, right? So, um, uh, so I, I, I'm not sure I bring that up, but. Uh, all the point of it was the, the events I've been able to manage to make all these events free for the special needs players. So what I do at the event, um, I call it adaptive disc golf. Um, every single individual that comes out is, is unique and has different physical abilities, different cognitive abilities. And everybody, I have to figure out what they're able to do at their level. And then I adapt the game of disc golf to them. I might change the way they throw a disc because they're in a wheelchair. I might make the entire hole 30 feet long because they have autism and uh, are lower functioning. And this is, this is what they're able to do. Um, I also have, you know, I've had players with Down syndrome who would be appalled at the thought of actually playing an easier hole than everybody else. They want to play the holes <laughs> everyone else does. And um, I've, I've had a blind player who was, who was extremely good at been playing for like 10 years 
Wow. So it, it, it completely, it, it, oh yeah, it, it varies. Um, you want to hear a story about the blind guy? Heck yeah. Okay. So this blind, <laughs> this is where, this is where some of your viewers are going to just start clicking off and, and calling me the devil. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> but, um, so a blind player comes out, um, and he, uh, the very first hold, we walk out to the hole and, uh, we lead him by his cane. He, this is out in Arcata in Northern California. It's actually my first special needs class ever. Oh, wow. Um, and he, we go out to, we go out to the first hole and, you point his cane where the basket is. Now, because he's been playing for like 10 years, he had good technique and he knew like, okay, on hole one, you got to throw kind of low because there's a branch on the right. Like he, like he knew from experience how the hole was. So he steps up to the very first hole and he throws it, you know, about 25 or 30 feet away from the basket. Um, like a 250 foot hole. And so we get up to the basket. We lead him up to his disc. He says, he stands at his disc, holds his putter, says, can you ring the chains? And I go over and I ring the chains and when I do, I say to him, after ringing the chains, I said, you're about 28 feet. And he turns his head towards me and says, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> oh. Right? So this guy, this guy, this guy triangulates with his ears to gauge distance based on the sound of the chains. So not only does he line up, but he actually gauges distance based on sound. I mean, it's brilliant, right? It's like echolocation. So I know. He steps up and he puts his 28 foot putt, hits metal and misses. We play the next hole. He throws it about 20 feet away, makes the putt for a birdie. Go to the third hole. He lands like 25 feet away, hits metal and misses. But he went par, birdie, par, and on his three holes, right? <laughs> so um, I was obviously like blown away. Um, now, after the event, we play a round of doubles, and it was random doubles. And as these things happened, you know, he got a um, he got a good partner, and I wasn't on my game. And you know, but I mean, I tried my best. I mean, absolutely. And him and his partner beat me and beat me and my partner in doubles. So in my, in my experience, uh, players with any type of physical disability or, or people with physical disabilities, they want to be treated like everybody else, especially a man. He's like a 40 year old man. He's just like me. Yeah. Um, and so what, so I decided that the last thing he wanted to hear was what an inspiration he was because he probably has heard that his entire life and is probably sick of being singled out for it. So I went on instead. I went on my Facebook page and I posted. I go, I can't believe this blind asshole beat me. You know how embarrassing it is to come to come to town and lose to someone who's blind. I mean, my God, that is the most humiliating thing that's ever happened. Anyway, I just shred this guy. I just I just ripped him a new one for beating me. Um, I was told by his friends he loved it because I treated him like one of the guys. I basically said, "You beat me, fuck you. That's how awesome. dare you? You know, like I. Anyways, he got it. Um, yeah. but at the same time on my post. I had people were, were, were like responding to my Facebook post with unfriend quick. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like they totally, they totally didn't get it, but I don't care. I, I care about him. And his friend said he loved that I didn't, he, he loved the fact that I didn't point out what an inspiration he was because that's what he's been hearing for 40 years and he was sick of it. So anyways, I, I stand by it, but not everybody gets me. That makes so much sense. Like that's, I, you're, your personality so interesting to to like you obviously have a, a good read of people and you understand people and you can interact well because knowing that he of course he has he's a blind disc golfer and a good one at that from what you say like it, he's heard oh my god you're amazing how do you do that so many times but just to be treated like a disc golfer just went the extra mile for that guy that's amazing oh 
I think so too. Actually, my my favorite line, and I and it's still I, I believe it's still up on my Facebook post. It's from like a year ago, but someone posted, "There is a special place in hell for people like you." <laughs> that was my favorite line. <laughs> uh, some people just don't get it. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, that's which is fine. Um, so that's what, so, but anybody's just questions like that's what Blue Power has been about. It's been about adaptive, um, um, disc golf. Um, like I said, along the way, like over this winter, we, we did 28 events that were fundraisers for the Francisco Raptor Center. So I raised, you know, uh, a few thousand dollars for them. Um, I did, we did fundraising for Kids in New York, uh, for uh, like a food drive. So I, I provided 3,000, uh, 3,000 meals for kids. In Ithaca, New York, and when I say I provide, I mean the disc golfers that came out right. donated and bought mulligans, but I, I kind of facilitated this. So there has been some some of what I do has been direct has been directly fundraising, um, and I'm working with Autism Speaks now. Um, we have some goals for this year that our goals are here halfway over, um, and I don't know I'll know as the year goes on how we're doing, but um, I am doing fundraising for them as well. But most of what I'm doing is basically been been I found a clever way, I think, uh, to not ask anybody to donate because that's really hard to get people to donate and I don't want to. But I find yeah. a clever way where people just basically buy a disc and a shirt. That's basically what they're doing. They buy a disc and a shirt at a normal cost. And then I use this money to travel to um, run my special needs events and do the stuff I do. So I, don't know, I, I think it's a great formula. I'm, I'm proud of it. Yeah, man. I've been uh, I've been friends with you on Facebook for a couple of years now. And I've been I've been seeing all the events you put on and all the all the seminars you do and like, it looks like you're having a blast, but not only just you, like everyone that comes to your classes and gets to interact with you and meet you, they all have a smile on their face and they all seem to be having a great time. And for you to be helping out special needs community like that, it just, it gives disc golfers a good name as opposed to the stereotypical dirty hippie pot smoking, (laughs) getting drunk on the course, playing Frisbees. Like that's, that's incredible that you've gone out of your way to, to do that and use what you love to to really help them out. That's that's really great, man. Well, you know, one one neat one neat thing that, that uh, and I keep meaning to make a video about this is because I I like to get in my soapbox once in a while. I, I I'm 46, so I hit the age where I every once in a while I get in my soapbox about <laughs> my life views. But um, one of the things that um, one of my pet peeves is when pe- people have all sorts of reasons why they give and they do things for charity and they do, you know, they, you know, they contribute and people are, are often critical of them for that. Like, Oh, well, he just, he just made that big donation. So everybody would applaud him. And, and, uh, or, uh, Oh, he, he only puts a hundred dollar bill in the, the basket at church to uh, show off to the people in the pew next to him. Or, yeah. uh, you know, he only does it for the tax write off. And like, I, and I'm, I, my pet peeve is like that you're critical of people for whatever their motives are. I mean, who gives a fuck why somebody does good things? If they're doing good things, I think it's awesome. And if, if someone, if someone, if someone is out there like working hard because they like people patting them on the back and like to be a hero, good for them. I think it's awesome. That's way better than not doing good things, you know? Yeah. So I, the reason why I bring this up is because I am not ashamed to say that. I absolutely love all the messages, the emails from special needs people come to me and they say they look up to me or that I'm their hero or they admire me or they, they're proud of me or all this stuff. I absolutely totally love that. And, and I'm not ashamed of it that I 
I love the attention that I get for it. And it's, it's you know, if someone wants to fault me for being, like I've been, people have actually attacked me for it. They're like, well, you're only doing this because of all the attention you get. I'm like, okay, uh, yes, I enjoy it, right? I'm human. So, um, yeah, so that's my, that's my soapbox message out there. Who cares why you do good things? If you're doing good things, and if it's, if it's just because it's a tax write-off, that's still amazing. I, uh, I don't care. Personally. I uh, seen an interview with you on the internet, and you said something that really clicked with me, and something I've always said. You, uh, I'm not quoting, paraphrasing, but you said, you know, if someone... If someone starts a business and tells you that they're not doing it for money, they're a fucking hypocrite. And it's so yeah, true. Like right. you are, you start a business, you intend on having some sort of profit. You are going to gain wealth from your business. I mean, that's why you start a business. So, and that attitude that, yeah, I'm doing this for that reason. And with the charity work, I'm doing that to be seen and everything. Yeah, maybe I am. And I do like the attention a little bit, but I'm helping other people out and I'm being a nice person. What I'm doing is not helping anything. And that just, yeah, that speaks just awesome. <laughs> no, I, I I actually know the interview you're talking about because someone asked me about my motives behind starting this, this company and yeah. I said to make a lot of money. Yeah. I would love, by the way, I would love to be able to make more money than I'm making now. I mean, I, I have, I'm not complaining, but I mean, I've absolutely struggled the last year and a half. It's, it's, um, this is the way I've described it is I have, I haven't slept in my car. I, I haven't gone hungry, but at any point in the past year and a half, my transmission had gone out. I would have been standing on the side of the freeway. I would have been done. Like, yeah. and, and I absolutely don't want to be, I can't emotionally be in this position like for the rest of my life. I mean, it's been, the anxiety over being that close to the edge for the past year and a half has been very hard. Mm -hmm. And I, I am working very hard to figure out how to make what I do more profitable because like, I, I just, I, I couldn't do this for 10 more years like this. It would be impossible. Um, so yeah, so I have, I very much have the goal of making, not getting rich, but of, of making a decent living doing what I do. I mean, God, I'm, yeah, I mean, of course that's the goal. <laughs> Right. Let's uh, let's talk about your your business. You have fly high discs, right? Yeah, the, the, yeah. Honestly, though, I I really kind of distanced myself from that. Um, it I, I've been very public um, that I support that industry. I support liberty and freedom. I mean, I'm a a diehard. I don't want to say libertarian because that sounds political, but I have those types of views about individual and human rights and yeah. uh, government intrusion into our lives is, is vile and blah, blah, blah. Right. But, um, but because of, because my life has taken this turn in the last year and a half, working with autism and working with kids and stuff, I've kind of been distancing myself from that. Um, just because not for any other, like I'm not ashamed of it. It's just that it's not in my best interest to be connected to that. It's not, it, it doesn't help my goals. That makes sense. That makes sense. Understandable, but uh, like I said, that doesn't mean I, you know, changed my stance on the subject. It's just that I, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not in my best interest to do so. I just, I follow. I mean, this is this. I stumbled across this across this a year and a half ago, and now I'm, in, I'm addicted to, to my special needs piece. That's awesome. And, and, uh, 
let's talk about uh, some of your achievements that you've you've accomplished in the disc world. You've uh, you set records, you've broke records, you've broke your own records. Like uh-huh. what? Let's let's just get it out of the way. In 1995 to 98, uh, you had the longest backhand throw, and then in 98 you broke your own record and uh, kept it until 2000. And then you also had the uh, world's longest sidearm from 2000 to 2015, as well as 1998 to current, the fastest throw at 91 miles per hour, 146 and a half kilometers for our listeners across the pond. What, (laughs) what is it like, like leading up to that where you set those records like what kind of regiment are you on with practice and actually working on your um, distance and all that yeah when, when i was actually doing that i mean i most of my training just involved throwing mm-hmm. um it was um it was very similar to um even like say baseball pitchers a generation or two ago they weren't lifting weights they were going out and throwing baseballs and that's what right. they did and uh, we, we've learned now that that working out and building other muscles and things could enhance that. And, and you, you know, you see that in sports as well. In ball golf, you know, ball golf is used to lift weights, yeah. you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Um, so I, I was kind of in that mindset. Like I did not want to build any muscle that would I thought would restrict my range of motion. Just that was that was ignorant. I probably could have been a little better had I known more then. Uh, but mostly, what I did was was throw. I mean, I would throw into a, I would put up a tarp and I would just throw repeatedly, just over and over again. Um, I mean, what? Well, that's that's it. Wow. <laughs> that's the short of it. Um, I think I figured out one time if you count like putting and driving and upshots, everything together, I think I'd done like five and a half million throws or some silly number like that. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was that was the bulk of it. I was also happened to be six foot seven, which oh wow, I didn't know uh, that. From the, yeah, from a physics standpoint, that that was that's definitely an advantage. Um, so that you know, yeah, that was luck. Leverage on your side. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, that was that was it. So, do you think that uh, you think that your speed record? has a chance of being broken i mean that's that's oh, pretty ridiculous oh, no, oh, the, the, the speed record has been broken has it, it really somewhere um it, it's yeah, up it in a few places it's up like in quite a few places actually oh yeah well no, it, when, when when it went up it was current but it got broken like a, a year or a year and a half ago i think simon was not broken oh wow. um i yeah i i my record was set with a uh, a golf weight disc uh-huh. And the, the the record has since been broken with a, a lighter disc. Okay. Um, I think like, I was throwing like 170 some like 168 gram I think is what it was, and then it's now been broken with like a 90 gram disc, which of course oh. you less mass to accelerate. Right. So it's gonna get so faster. Um. By the way, I this this is not a comparison or discrediting Simon. I, I Simon is one of my two or three favorite players in the world. I love that. So, um. Him and Wiggins are—they're—they're uh, they're the ones on top now, which is—I'm a—I'm a huge fan. That's awesome. So, playing, coming coming back to the sport, 
and like readjusting how did how how long did it take you how long do you feel it took to like get back into the into the motion of things it actually i started playing in august and of 2014 and i uh i finally won my first tournament in april of 2015 but I, it, that was in the master's division um i i I gave up for a while playing in the open division. I was I was committed to being back in the open division at the time. Yeah, but I hadn't I didn't I hadn't really won a tournament. I finished second at one. I hadn't really won anything, so I switched to the Masters division in April, and and won my first tournament in the Masters division, and then went on to win the next five in a row in the Masters division, and then I switched back to open, and then I won the next seven in a row in the open. Wow. Yeah, it was it was really neat, and a lot of that was uh, like it's, it's going to sound funny, but but learning, like re- remembering how to win, uh, because mm-hmm. like I, I guess I've, I've always said like if you're cocky with your mouth, you're you're an asshole, mm-hmm. right? I mean that's no no one likes that, but you have to be cocky between your ears. I mean you have to have that attitude. And what happened was when I, I switched to the master's division, my very first tournament, I, I pulled into the parking lot after struggling at playing in the open for like nine months. Cause I, I, I should say when I didn't, I didn't touch a disc for like 13 years. Like I, I, Not I at all. there was one week where I, started, no, no, there was one week where I started on Monday and played a tournament that weekend. But other than that week, I literally did not touch a disc for 13 years. I didn't go to leagues. I didn't, I made, I, I didn't play at all. Wow. So I lost all my muscle and then did play. So when I came back, I was um, uh, rusty <laughs> a yeah. little bit. Um, but so like, but when all of a sudden, uh, when I switched to the master's division and I went to the first tournament, I remember pulling into the parking lot and I was thinking, I got this. Everybody's here. You know, they're here to watch me play. Uh, this is my tournament. I got now. And I still I did not play anywhere near well enough to win in the open division at that tournament. But since I was playing against, people more of my level i kind of had that attitude again and, and I'll, you'll never see me act this way on the course but in my mind i was like yeah i mean this is my tournament to lose and after i did that a few times because in the next tournament i went out um to an eight-year tournament in montana and i won by 23 strokes wow in the master division I, yeah I, I mean i played i was shooting like 10 30 and a 10 50 and then like a 10 20 round like um, I was right up there with Nikola, I think a stroke behind Nikola Castro won the open position. So like I was playing really well. Um, but 23 stuff. Anyway, the point is that like mentally I was like, oh, here's how you win. Here's how you show up. Here's how you, I don't know, it's hard to say, but it's like, here's how you win. I mean, winning takes skill aside from just playing. There's just more to it than that. Oh yeah. Um, you know, lots of guys have skills, but they don't know how to win yet. Or younger players who are up and coming are really good, but they're like, they second, third, third, second, like they haven't learned to win. And that, it, it, that is a thing. So I, once I started doing that in the, uh, in the master's division, because then I went to an NT tournament in Oregon, and uh, um, which is, you know, one of our sports majors and, in the master's division, and I won that one. I was like, okay, this is great. So then I switched back to the open division after five wins in a row. And then, and then I won because I like, I, I knew how to win again. So... That, that mental, was really exciting. And then, then, I, then I kept winning. So you just you that mental. You were your own mental hype man, and just you seen it. You seen it in your mind that that's what you're gonna do, and you you did. Like, 
Yeah, it's like, and I don't want to like misrepresent myself. These tournaments I I won. These are not. I was not playing at most of them. I wasn't playing the top players in the world. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. My best last year, I was maybe pushing the top 25 in the open division. I, I wasn't near the top. I mean, I'm, I'm kidding myself. Um, but I did actually go to an open tournament in eight year in the open division where um, there were three, not, not including me, but there were three players at the tournament who were top 10 in the world in the open division. And I, and I won um, by 12 strokes. Wow. But that's, uh, that, yeah, that was like my highlighted year, but that's not like I was going to do that every week. If I met those same two players the following weekend, I would be seated to lose to them. I mean, that was, I mean, I had my big weekend, right? Yeah. So, I'm not competing with Paul and Ricky or you know, and, and probably never will. Well, I mean, you, yeah, from what I've looked at this year, you're still shooting great. You're still throwing great. I mean, how is your season going as far as playing this year? Yeah, I haven't played a whole lot of tournaments. I've, I've only played like, I think, Nine tournaments, I think I've, I, I, and see if I get the numbers wrong, someone's going to be like, you are. <laughs> but I think I've played, I feel like nine tournaments, I think I've won four or something like that. Okay. Um, but small tournaments, I mean, the Arkansas Championships, Chrissy's was there, he's really, really good player. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to downplay. I mean, it's, I, I, if I win an open tournament and there's a hundred people there, I still beat a hundred people. It's not like, that's not an accomplishment, but if Jeremy Colling was there or Simon Lazat was there, like I, yeah, probably not going to beat them. I mean, just honestly, I know I know my role. I know my place. <laughs> Played from '85 to 2001. What what was it that made you take your hiatus, your retirement? What sparked that? Oh, my daughter was born, and I wanted to be home to raise to raise her. I mean, I raised her 50-50 with my ex for her first 13 years. I'm afraid my 13 years gone. I mean, she was, you know, in my house three to four nights a week, and she was uh, at her mom's house three to four nights a week, and, you know, we co-raised her. Um, I've never had an interest in being just like a casual player who just shows up to local tournaments, and, you know, like if I wasn't going to compete at the highest level, I I didn't, I, I just wasn't interested in competing. Okay. Um, and so when I decided that I was not going to be touring and competing, then I was done. Wow. How'd you, uh, how'd you keep yourself busy during that downtime? <laughs> um, I, I was building internet. I, I had a business building internet businesses and then um, selling them. I would build an internet business, get it profitable and then sell it for you know, between two and a half and three years annual net. Okay. what I was earning and I, I could do that and I could build that like in a year, year and a half. So I actually, I actually did quite well for 13 years. Well, I should say nice. I did quite well for about 11 years. Um, uh, towards the end, it, it, uh, um, I lost my touch. <laughs> well, the internet boom, it kind of, kind of petered out too. So yeah. the, the time was the timing of uh, being able to just go put up a website and just make money without even trying had, had passed. That makes sense. I I notice that like you're uh you're familiar with technology. You understand a good like social media presence. You're always posting a video or letting people know where you're at on your Facebook and stuff. 
where can we find you on the internet if someone wants to reach out and contact you for anything? Um, yeah, just contact Scott Stokely and it's S-T-O-K-E-L-Y on Facebook. And that's the, that's by far the best way to reach me. Um, you can, you can email me at S-O-S-T-O-K-E-L-Y, um, at gmail.com. But, um, which, which will get me that way too. Which, Facebook's the easiest way. I mean, I'm on, I'm on that constantly. Um, yeah, I love, um, I, I it's just Facebook is, I, I, it's, it's, everybody gets their own canvas. Yeah. And all the people get to stare at the art they create, whatever, however you define the word art. So it's, um, it's been really fun. I mean, I love, I love doing really, really like weird and stuff that I, well, I do stuff to amuse myself, basically. So, um, like, uh, like a couple months ago, I decided I was going to be a pro wrestler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did you ever see that? Yes, I did. I just yes, I did. Um, yeah, that one that I laughed at. I, I laughed at one. It was it was been a while ago now, probably about a year ago or so. Um, I can't remember who who you were talking about, but uh, you were saying that you heard voices in your fillings. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was okay. So this is when when I came back to the sport. Um, I went out to a couple tournaments and like immediately first off i was nowhere near as good as the players at these tournaments because i hadn't played for a long time and, and um i was starting at this company and I, I was basically going out on the road i was trying to get my name back in the sport and i was like well i'm not going to get it by winning tournaments at least not right now and i'm not going to get it i mean everybody's too farther than me and um I, I was like well i need to do something to stand out and so i uh I'm a real big Chael Sonnen fan in, in mixed martial arts. Okay. And he, uh, uh, are you familiar with Chael? No, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Well, Chael Sonnen basically is a guy that has talked himself into some of the biggest fights in the sport. Um, he moves up a weight class to fight the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world, John Jones, in a complete and utter mismatch that nobody thought was anything but a mismatch. And it wound up being like the third highest grossing pay-per-view <laughs> Um, in in the sport at the time in mixed martial arts, and he did it basically by creating a rivalry with the guy that he didn't even shouldn't have even been in the ring with, right? Um, and I just thought it was that that was utterly brilliant of him. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I go, I'm going to start a rivalry with Paul McBath, which is which is the dumbest thing, right? Um, <laughs> you you want to kind of hear the story of this, how this went? Yeah, definitely. So basically, I decided I'm going to start a rivalry with Paul McBeth. I mean, it's, I mean, it's completely ridiculous, and I, I, to me, it's hilarious because it's like obviously there's no rivalry there. So it it, um, it started by like I I went online and I I I posted to Paul's Facebook wall and I said, Paul, we don't know each other, but I've been thinking about this a long time, and I just wanted to I don't know how to say this. Oh God, I just want to. Oh, I guess I'll just say, okay, Paul, here, here goes. Will you be my sworn mortal enemy <laughs> yes and it, it was it, you know, so I, that was just kind of like as a joke but then all of a sudden there were like 300 replies they're like oh he's back and he's calling out Paul McBeth I'm like no I'm not I can't I'm not even qualified to carry the guy's golf bag at this point I mean it's completely ridiculous but I was I knew I was onto something because everybody was paying attention and I was getting all these people now following me in social media so I went out that like the following week Paul McBeth was Everybody knew he was in Australia at the Australian Open. And so um, since everybody knew he was in Australia, 
I was at this tiny little seed tier, like one day seed tier tournament in North Carolina. So 30 minutes before the event in North Carolina, I went, I went on my Facebook page and I challenged Paul to come out and face me at the event. And I said, you don't come out and face me at this tournament in North Carolina in 30 minutes. Everybody's going to know that you're a coward, right? <laughs> yep. He's, he's, he's 12,000 miles away, right? It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's just so stupid. But um, so afterwards, and I ended up finishing like seventh place out of 20 people or something ridiculous like that. And uh, at the award ceremony, I told everybody at the award ceremony, I said, everybody, get, get out your phones. You know, I, want, I want everybody to get this on video or post your Facebook pages. And so everybody gets out their phones and starts recording me at the award ceremony. And I'm like, you're ducking me, Paul. You're ducking me. Why, why are you ducking me, Paul? Why are you afraid to face Right. And so I, I came up with this idea. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a storyline. I story for the whole thing out called uh, Descent into Madness. I don't know why I named it that. But I said, I go, wow. I go, what if, what if my obsession with Paul Macbeth was starting to make me lose my mind. And what if I went out publicly and started to like every day post a new video where I'm starting to lose my mind more and more? You know, what if I can get people to believe I'm actually losing it? And so that's where I that's where I came up with the video where I, I put I put tinfoil on my head and claimed that Paul was speaking to me through the feelings in my teeth. And uh, you know, I was I <laughs> I mean, I think I thought it was great, you know, I thought it was really fun. Um but uh, that's kind of how that, and then it, it ended with uh, a, a, a someone making a statement publicly that I was uh, uh, had been checked into a mental institution. Yeah, and I don't know. I was. Uh, I you, you remember? Yeah, I seen. I've seen all those videos you're talking about. I watched the whole thing, and I, I'm with you. I thought it was just it was brilliant. Like it was hilarious how many how many trolls came out of the woodwork and how many people were like, Oh, it's on. It's a Stokely Macbeth feud. Like feud. It was, it was hilarious. And I do remember the whole, Oh, Stokely was checked into a mental, mental psych check, blah, blah, blah. And like, it was like, are you, are you fucking serious? Like you don't see the haha in this guys. Like, Oh, I know, I know. Well, and the funny thing was, is I, I have like, I, I'm an old school pro wrestling mark. I like, I'm, I came out of the pro wrestling closet like five years ago and said, okay, you know what, I'm a pro wrestling mark. You know, deal with it, right? So, <laughs> yeah. like, there's, there's, um, I, I, I'm fascinated. I actually don't even watch wrestling, but I'm fascinated by the business of wrestling because the way I see it is they're effectively marketing a shit product into a billion dollar industry just by marketing and psychology. So I'm fascinated by that. So I remember I like the first time when I was going to face Paul, um, when, I, when I say face Paul, that's not actually accurate. I mean, I'm, we're in two different worlds. So I wasn't actually facing Paul, but the first tournament I was going to be at, and he was going to be at also, don't really play it. Um, I remember making a video where I said, I'm going to make a video to, uh, to I go first to, to all the fans and to all the haters. I go first to all my fans, come on out and support me, wear blue, you know, because my hair was dyed blue. I'm like, come on and wear blue and support me and root me on. If you think what I'm doing is great, you know, get behind me, come on, root me on. And then I said, uh, I go, but to all the haters out there, everybody out there who, who doesn't like me, doesn't approve of what I'm doing, I got a message to you. Come on out to the event and root against me and cheer when I throw out a bounce. And, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the old pro wrestling thing is, is if they love you or they hate you, you'll put, you'll put butts in the seat. Right. If they're indifferent to, if you're indifferent to you, you do nothing for the business. So my, my whole thing was like, I like to polarize people because I think personally it's good for the, I think it's good for the sport. If you're coming out to root me on, great. If you're coming out to root against me, great. 
you know, either way, if you're coming out to the event, the, the event wins. So that's kind of my philosophy. I mean, speaking of people coming out to the event, like, talk about a sport that has just evolved, like, just exponentially over time. What is it like nowadays when you go to these disc golf events and there's tons of people there to watch and cheer for their players as opposed to back when you had first started playing? <laughs> yes, yeah, a gallery, when I was out playing, the entire gallery at like the finals was made up by the other guys in the tournament. Right. There was no such thing. People weren't coming out to watch the event. I mean, you know, there might be a handful. I mean, that's not really fair. I mean, there were some bigger tournaments. The Brent Hamburg Memorial used to bring out um, casual spectators. And um, I don't want to like take away from the, the hard work of the tournament directors that did bring people out because there were, but, it, but it's definitely not like it is now. Um, no, I feel like our sports, like, I don't know. I feel like a proud parent a little bit. You know, I, yeah. I was there at the beginning. I, I did so much to try to promote and grow the sport. I, I back in 1999, 2000, I, I drove to 155 cities back when there was only like 750 courses. Most of, of those courses didn't get played at all, but I went to 155 courses where there was a local club and did a, a pro clinic, a free pro clinic for those players. I mean, I, I, I think I did a lot to help grow this thing. And so, I feel extremely proud. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of all the, I, I'm old, so I'm going to call them kids, right? But the kids on tour, I'm the hugest fan of those. I, I love, I love, I, I really like Paul McBeth. I like Ricky Waisaki. I like Nico Castro, Simon, yeah. Eagle, you know, Drew Gibson. I mean, there's so many, there's Scott, uh, Bilo, there's so many cool guys out there. Um, and the, and the women play. I love, I mean, Paige Pierce and Valerie Jenkins. And uh, Sarah Holcomb is my, probably my favorite player in the women's tour. Nice. So, like, I'm happy because these kids deserve everything they're getting, the attention they're getting, the fact that some of them are actually making a living now, a decent living. I think is I love it. They and they deserve every penny. It's awesome. That's it's just insane how much the the sport has grown. I mean, I was I've been lucky. My whole life, there's been a disc golf course within a few miles of where I've stayed. So, I mean, I can I can go six minutes down the road to my favorite disc golf spot anytime and, and play 18. So I lucked out, but it's one of one of my favorite things to do with new friends and people from out of town. Like, do you want to go disc golf? And 90 percent of the time it's disc golf and you take them out there and of course like everybody the first couple throws it's really awkward and weird but then they get that snap of the wrist right just one time or that flick of the wrist whatever it is that they do and that disc flies and does what they think it should do and it's so satisfying like everyone i've taken disc golfing is hooked forever Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny because when I, like when I started playing, there were, I believe about 75 courses in the world, wow. like 30 something states didn't even have a course. And like, you, you could not mention disc golf without having to explain what, the, what it was. I mean, there's like, it was so bizarre back then. And then, I mean, nobody got it. Nobody, I mean, it was just, it was, it was such a weird like thing back then to, to, to play disc golf 
now it's just it's normal. I mean, lots and lots of people do it. Everybody knows people that do it. No one looks down on it. I mean, yeah. it might be some like older conservative people that have certain views because they, they, you know, there are always going to be people at this golf course goes in that liked it when they used to be able to walk their dog and not see anybody else, right? Of in course. that part of the park. Of course. But those are, those people are a minority now. Um, but the sport's respected now. Um, and, and, well, I mean, it's just, it's on the path to respect. I mean, it's respected with most people and, um, the rest of the people are being converted. So, Man. yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's great. Now, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I love where the sport is now. Um, but I also love being, having been at a time when it was the Wild West, too. I mean, the sport used to be really, really weird. Tournaments used to be, I mean, do you want to hear about tournaments back in the old days? Because they were, they were weird. I do. I was just going to ask you about that underground, like back in the day when it was still, Everyone was like, yeah. what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, no, okay, so like basically like the way that the way tournaments when I started playing, the way tournaments went down, um is um well first off, you, you there was no pre registration. So you you entered the morning of the tournament and you would show up and the tournament might be scheduled for nine, but the tournament director might roll in at ten three. <laughs> and right. No, I mean, you know, people, and, and all these things, everything I mentioned now, no one really cared about because that's just kind of the way it was. And you were so happy that someone wanted to run a tournament. So at 1030, the tournament director like rolls in. He may or may not have scorecards. You might just have paper for you to write your scores on. Um, you would enter the tournament. There were no divisions that you just entered. Yeah. You know, if it costs 30 bucks, you paid 30 bucks. And, um, and uh, this is the stuff where the, the PDJ, like, people want to, like, shy away from the, the early history of the sport because it's, it's not like this now. But, you know, back then, the tournament director, you know, might very well be smoking a joint at the players' meeting. Yeah. Um, that, that would happen at actual PDJ tournaments back in the early days. I mean, this stuff is absolutely not part of the sport now, but it's yeah. – and, and nor should it be. But – we shouldn't be ashamed of our past either. I mean, this is a very colorful, you know, part of our, like I, I always reference like baseball, like the, in the early days in the 1800s of baseball, I mean, guys would slide on their left side because there was a pint of whiskey in their right pocket. Yeah. You know, as guys would light up cigars and, and it was incredibly racist and like all this stuff that is like not a part of the sport today, nor should it be. But I don't think that you should like, you can't denounce your roots, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, this is. I mean, this is. I'm sorry. This the sport was created by a bunch of pot smoking hippies. Yeah, that's where disc golf came from. Like it or not, that's you know. And I'm very and and most. I mean, I'm I'm extremely proud of the people. And these really, I've known all the people that built our sport, and these are the best human beings I've ever known. And if they came from that culture, then. Who gives a crap? I mean, what matters is they built our sport for us that we're able to enjoy today, and um, I love them for it. So I'm not I'm not ashamed of our history at all. So, anyways, but 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 the point is that would happen at PDGA tournaments. Um, that was uh, that was something that just happened, right? And uh, the tournament director would show up, and um, you might have if it was a weekend tournament. This is I, it's so funny to even like remember this, but. 50 players might show up and pay 30 bucks a piece, right? So you have $1,500 in the pot, no players package or anything like that. Yeah. But there's, so you're playing, you're playing for $1,500 and 
And then that Saturday morning, $1,500 in cash went to the tournament director. Well, then by Sunday afternoon, tournament director might give back, say, $900 of the $1,500. And the reason why he gave back $900 was because him and the, his co-TD spent $600 partying all weekend with, with the, part of the entry fee. Uh, like I mean, that that didn't happen once. I mean, that just that was just kind of like I don't want to say it happened all the time. It certainly did happen all the time, but it, it that just happened. I mean, that's just that's the way it was back then. Uh, and by the way, you would you would not you wouldn't boycott the person's tournament. I mean, you might bitch about it. Ah, that sucks. You come to his next tournament because there was no one running tournaments. You were just so happy to, to have someone running a tournament. Um. There were tournaments that they, they, when the sports started getting more popular, they, 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 in the early days, you would never turn anybody away. So I, I played PDJ tournaments where there was seven or eight players per card. And the oh, tournaments wow. would, could run in like an hour or two hours after dark. Um, because you were playing in seven of them. And that's, that's what happened. I mean, that was just, there, there was no precedent for turning players away. That if a TV had turned players away, people would have lost their minds. Like, what do you mean? I, I, I showed up an hour and you have to let me play. Yeah. Um, so, um, it was, I don't know. It was just, it was nuts. And, um, but I mean, I got the best memories in the world. I love being there for these days of the sport because it was just amazing, interesting people doing this really weird thing that everybody thought was crazy if they'd even heard of it you know yeah that's our that's our history that's great man that's and it sounds like back then it was more of a like it was more of a like a camaraderie like a brotherhood kind of thing almost like everybody everybody was there for the same reason to enjoy the same thing everyone was kind of like into the same stuff and that was a way of hanging out but doing something while you're at it well, the thing was is that the thing we all had in common, I mean, basically all of us, is that we were all outcasts. Yeah. You know, um, and we all enjoyed this thing. And this was like, you know, it was kind of like um, like the guys who do the, the, like the LARPers, almost, you know, the, the, yeah. the live action role play guys who dress up and they do sword fights in the park. And everybody's like, look at those, you know, people make, make fun of or something. But the, the bond between, I don't know anything I've ever LARPed, but I, I can almost guarantee the bond between them is so strong because they all enjoy this thing that everybody else thinks is weird. And they got this, that, that in common. And I'm sure that, um, it's probably the same type of thing. I mean, that's, that's what we had going for us. And, but yeah, I, I never want to be like the old person who says, Oh, it was better back in our days. I mean, it wasn't better back in our days. I mean, it's better now than it's ever been. And I think it'll be better next year. The sports evolved and it's awesome. But I personally, wouldn't trade my experience for like the money or something like that. Yeah. I, mean, I love, I love being there through the old, I mean, God, I, I mean, I got just so many experiences that came from the fact that our sport was weird. <laughs> Side note, I need to have a live action role player come on the show because I really want to talk yes. to one now. Oh my God. I so, so we were at, I was in Austin at, at uh, Wright Park, and they were the LARPers were out there. Yeah. And um, by the by the way, this is the park where the where they filmed Days and Station Confused. Okay. What that's worth. Um. But um. So the uh, the the watchtowers there, not watchtowers, the towers there. Anyway, 
so the, the Harpers were there, and it was the, the it was the funniest thing I would ever seen because I was watching them. There was about twenty guys and two girls, and they were all doing their thing, and then they went to have lunch, and the two girls sat at a table by themselves, and the twenty guys all went to the oh. other table, and and I was sitting there watching, and all I kept thinking is. I guarantee you, three quarters of those guys have a crush on one or both of the two girls that were there. Yeah. And if, if any single one of those guys had gone over and sat with those girls, they would have gotten a date and had a girlfriend. It just takes because a hey, what's up? Because, <laughs> yeah, I, want, I wanted to go over there and just like give them a lecture and go, guys, this is, let me explain how this works. I know you like her. Go sit down and talk to her and ask. They were so awkward. It was, oh, but I, 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 this was not a knock on them. I just thought it was like so funny. I was like, wow, you, I mean, you guys are so cool. You're doing this totally cool thing. I think it's awesome. I but do, you got girls here. You know, dude, come on, guys. I can totally relate to that story. I play in a band and we tour all the time. We're always out. And one time we got asked to play a gig at a uh at a semi-local bar and it was a it was called a fish party and there's that website plenty of fish where people go to find each other you know well yeah i'm in the bathroom and there's like this group of dudes in the bathroom all talking about how they need to go out there and say something to this girl and just like you said like the bar was segregated like there was a like a, a bad sitcom tape line down the center of the bar, like girls on one side, and guys on the other. And all these poor dudes. And like you said, too, I'm not knocking them, but all it takes is a hey, what's up to start a conversation. And any one of those girls would have talked to any one of those guys. I, oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. When I was a ninth. When I was in ninth grade, I took a home I took a home ec class, and the reason I took it is because that's where all the girls were. Yeah, but like I I, I know, but but the thing was is though is that I never once talked to a single girl because <laughs> I was so awkward when I was when I was fourteen years old. But like like I knew yeah. I wanted to be around the girls, like for sure. I knew that, and I knew that my the numbers were my favorite because there was like three guys and like twenty seven girls. But I still, I still didn't talk to a single girl the entire time. <laughs> classic, classic. So, so I, 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 this is actually so it's a true story. So, like even like, and this is like, I this this is I've gone full circle at this point. But when I was like, when I went to college, I was like nineteen years old. I remember there was this girl that I had a crush on in my in my Spanish class, like the whole year. And and I I finally towards the end of the year, she was outside waiting for the class to go. I walked up to her. I finally got the nerve to talk to her. I walked up to her and I stood there and I'm like, my mouth kept moving, but the words were coming out. And finally, <laughs> she kept giving this weird look. And my my family said to her, I'm like, never mind. And I walked away. And like, so to this day, the only words, the only words I spoke to the girl I had a crush on all year were, never mind. <laughs> so maybe she thought you were talking about. I know, about... I know. Our... Go ahead. Maybe she thought, oh, well, no. Was that Nirvana? No, no, never mind. I was coming up with a real bad joke. <laughs> it just didn't work out. So any of my disc golfing fans out there would just like verbally murder me on the internet if I did not ask you what's in your bag right now. Oh, I am throwing MVP discs because I love MVP and I'm also throwing some Daredevil discs. Really? Um, yeah. 
MVP is, well, they are doing some things to help promote autism awareness, and oh. so is Daredevil. And okay. um, they are big supporters of me, which is, which is well, I mean, that's, that's supporting autism awareness, right? I mean, they're supporting what I'm doing so I can go run these events and all these clinics. Um, but I think that, well, I mean, and I, I will speak mostly on MVP, but I, Daredevil discs are good. They're legit good discs. Um, no one knows about them yet, but I think these guys are going to make a splash. Um, Nicola Castro's on that now. Um, they're, they're the real deal. But MVP just hasn't gone that pro sponsorship route. And, um, so they haven't quite got that exposure yeah. to that field. But their discs are good. They're so consistent. They fly so true. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge MVP fan. That's huge. And, and they're, they're also, they're, they're nerds. Oh, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. They're a nerd. We're all science nerds. So we're proud, um, man. I'm... Oh yeah, I got. I got. I got a tattoo of Charles Darwin on my calf. Oh, nice. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So like, I'm. 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 I'm a hundred percent nerd. Um, I've thrown an MVP mid range a few times. It's actually in my bag right now. Uh, I pull it out every once in a while. And a is it a theory or a vector? It's a vector. That's exactly. Yep, it's a vector. And they're great, aren't they? They really are. I love that rim on them for some reason. Like I love the grip on that rim, especially if like you 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 have like an overhand kind of grip. You know, like you have a lot of rim. It it just it's really comfortable, and I don't know. It's almost like for me to compare it to another disc. I feel like it's pretty close to a buzz almost. It just the way that it yeah. works in and handles mid range, but you can give it more for kind of an extended mid range. You know, you can you can do pretty long shots with them, and they're pretty stable. I love them. No, yeah. Well, the thing, the theory behind MVP, which makes sense, is they they have two different components. They have the perimeter of the disc, which is a different material than the than the flight plate. Okay. And and the best way I can describe it is. If you took it to the far extreme and, and say took a paper plate that has no weight, it's even, completely evenly distributed weight throughout the plate. There's no weight on the perimeter at all. It, it obviously, you throw it, it just gets squirrely. Turns far to the right, runs out of spin, falls back to the left, like really hard. Yeah. Well, if you, if you incrementally add more and more weight to the perimeter, to the edge of the, of that paper plate, you're going to get less and less of the squirreliness to the point where it's going to fly more and more true. And uh, that effectively is what MVP is doing. They're distributing more weight to the outside, which is going to allow the disc to have a truer flight. The other thing it does is, gyroscopically, the disc is going to continue spinning longer because you distribute more weight to the outside. And the longer it spins, and as you know, when it's just going to spin, that's when it starts to fade off. Uh, it starts to fade out, right? It, it has right. a different characteristic at the end of its flight than it does at the beginning or middle of its flight. So by distributing more weight to the perimeter, it's going to keep a truer flight throughout its flight. Now, this does not mean that it automatically flies straight because because of the, the rim configuration and weight distribution, the disc can be made to turn to the right or turn to the left. But that turn is going to be a consistent turn and more predictable. That's the theory behind it. and I personally very much believe that, that they are succeeding. Um, I think that, and that's, uh, I think they've nailed it. I 
really, really am a huge fan. Like, like a, like a head slapping, like, oh my God, this is so, uh, this, this is the evolution of golf disc. Wow. And, um, I think that or, um, you know, if they had gone and, and bribed some products to other discs, then I think people would have figured it out also. And, um, but that's just not the route they've gone. They've been focusing on, I mean, I've met with the brothers. I've been to the factory a number of occasions and, they really have been focused on, you know, like, hey, right now we just need to make really, really good discs that have the flight characteristics that fill in the gaps in our life. And like that's been their focus. And um I think it's really cool. They haven't just gone the traditional route. Okay, we're making discs, let's go sponsor players. I'm not knocking that. Yeah. But they basically said, let's make good discs, let's complete our line, let's make 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 sure we got this down, let's focus on quality. Um and uh yeah, I mean, I couldn't say enough good things about MVP. I think they're amazing, and yeah, they're going to be a huge player pretty soon here. So I know it's hard to speak about other players, but like, well, well, I, oh no, not for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting direct no about problem. anything. This is this is still more of a, a disc question. Like, do you feel okay. that these newer disc companies like MVP? And some of the other ones that are out, do you feel like some like a lot of players are starting to switch from the the classic Anova discraft to to see what's going on with these other discs to get away from the norm? Yeah, I think that um, <clears throat> well, the thing is, is I, I think this holds true for most sports. I mean, you could say the same. Just you could, what I'm about to say, you could. I, I'm not an expert in other sports, but I just intuitively know that this is going to be true. Um, if you're talking about golf clubs or tennis rackets or darts or anything like that, yeah. you have the technical span, technical standards provided by the governing body of the sport. Everybody's going to be pushing those technical standards. Mm-hmm. And if you're basically using like a polyurethane or a rubber or a whatever blend of plastics you're using, and you can only make a disc a certain sharpness with a certain width, uh, rim on the disc. The flight plate can only be so thin before it becomes where it'll break. You typically have a lot of companies that are going to be making very similar discs. So yeah. the, the fact is, is if you were throwing Inva or Discap and you decided you were going to switch to Latitude or Dynamic or Legacy, the, the transition isn't going to be that challenging. I mean, everybody's making good discs. Um, so the advantage to the smaller companies the biggest advantage, I think, is that you're, you know, to be a big fish, small pond, you know, if you're, if you're working with a smaller company and you're successful, you're, you're a big player for that company and you become an important part of that company more so than, say, a big company that's sponsoring lots and lots of players. Um, so there's, there's an advantage, I think, for a player to maybe go to work with a small company. Um, but I'm a huge fan. I mean, like, companies like, like, um, uh, like dynamic and latitude that have come up, I and mean, these guys are big players now. I mean, they they have this this incredible business model. They're producing fantastic discs. I agree. You have companies trying to do things. Yeah, and companies like um like Legacy. I mean, I love Legacy. I love I love the Rico brothers, and I grew up with them. I have I have taught them how to play. Um, me and several other people kind of raised raised them when they were younger, right? Yeah. Um. And uh, companies like Vibram, who's trying to do something totally different, they make really, really good discs. Vibram discs are, are great, for sure. I've never completely different, you know. 
Um, Gateway is like, I mean, Gateway, I mean, look at what Johnny McRae was doing with Gateway. I mean, yeah. He was killing it with Gateway. They make a disc. It's just, I don't know so much the company. Um, MVP is doing something different with that outside rim configuration. So it is something different. And I think that makes them stand out. But all, all the companies are good. I mean, shoot, I got, you know, and I got total respect for all of them too. Even the big, like Innova and Discraft, I mean, these, those two companies did more to build our sport than any individual person out there. Most definitely. I mean, so, I mean, you know, Innova's the biggest. They've done, they've done more for disc golf than anybody in, in the world. And again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Oh, well, they're doing it because it's financially motivated. Well, who gives a shit? Yeah. If they're working to get courses put in the ground, who cares if it's what their motives are? It's good for us. Exactly. So it yeah, works both I'm ways. A, I'm a fan of everybody. I'm a fan of all of them. I really am. That's really cool. I, I boy, I haven't even touched on like how weird my life is. Oh um, man, the, 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 you can I, keep going. <laughs> oh, I can talk. I can talk all night. I, mean, I don't mind. I mean, this is this is great promotion for me. A couple things I need. I need my own reality show. So if somebody out there can get me a reality show, um, I agree. I think that'd be cool. What kind of? What do you? What do you mean by reality show? Like what kind of reality show? Disc golf oriented or? Yeah, disc golf and touring oriented, and um, I I really really try to like. I mean, I I, I don't know. I this is not a knock on, on any of the guys. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the guys on tour, but I'm not sure that a lot of them would make for the most interesting reality show. Um, <laughs> I you know, I mean, everybody's different, and everybody you know, everybody wants to be so professional. Like I, I don't have, I, I get to be myself more than a lot of players because a lot of players are they're representing their sponsors, they're they're putting on a, a uniform to come out to the tournaments. That's how they want to represent it, and I got I got total respect for everybody for doing that. But I'm kind of out on my own doing my own thing a little bit differently. And then, uh, I don't know, I think it's, I think my life's interesting. It certainly isn't boring. Um, yeah. At least last I checked. <laughs> not, not to me. I, I purposely make it not boring. You're always doing uh, something. I, I, what? I said you're always doing something. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm like I'm a huge fan. Like, one of the things that I, I'm a huge fan of, I love ghetto tourist traps. Oh really? Yeah. Explain, explain. Oh my god! I just, I like literally, like I was just in Butte, Montana, and I was so excited. I got to go see the uh, the Guinness World Record for the world's most toxic lake. Oh wow! Um, it cost, yeah, it cost two dollars, and you walk out on a plat on a platform and look at this lake, and it's the world's most it's it's a toxic waste dump, right? It's a toxic waste site. Um, it's. From the old mind. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, but I, I, I love the fact that they, someone figured out how to make $2 a person off it. That is pretty <laughs> um, Before brilliant. that, I, yeah, I came from the, like a week before I was, I went to the Greyhound Bus Museum in, uh, in Hibbing, Minnesota. Um, do you want to hear about the, do you want to hear about the coolest, uh, ghetto tourist trap ever? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I don't know if it's still there. I, I really hope it is. Um, so we're driving through northern Wyoming and we're out in the middle of nowhere. Like there's no telephone poles, there's no stores, there's nothing, right? Northern Wyoming is barren. And all of a sudden there's just this random sign in the middle of nowhere that says 
come see the world's deepest hand dug well. <laughs> oh. And we're like, we're like, I'm with my, my friend Randy and, and our partners, and we're like, oh, hell, hell yeah, we're going to go see the world's deepest hand dug well. So we go around a couple more times, and next thing we know, in the middle of like nowhere is a mobile home. It's just sitting out like off the side of the road. And there's a sign out front that says, come see the world's deepest hand dug well. <laughs> so we, we, we pull off, we, we pull up to it and, uh, there's a, there's a mobile home and behind it is this little kind of like brick structure about four feet tall, six feet across. I mean, tiny little thing behind it. Clearly it was the well, but that was, that's what was there, right? So we, we, we look at it. The sign that says, take a tour of the world's deepest hand dug well, four dollars and fifty cents. So we, we were like, I'm like, absolutely. So we walk up, we follow the sign up to the front, we're up to the front door of this mobile home. We knock on the door. The guy opens up the door and he's wearing nothing but a pair of boxer shorts oh, and a, a, yes. a white, and a, and a white beater t-shirt. And it's like his shirts, it's, it's stained and his hair is fraggled and he's, his, his, you know, he's unshaven. Oh. And, uh, he's, he's looking at us like he has no idea why we're there. And we're like, we're here to take a tour of the world's deepest hand dug well. And he's like, all right, hold on a second. And he turns his head and he goes, Maybell, Maybell, get up here, girl, Maybell. And, 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 and the girl's name was Maybell because we talked about this, about Maybell for years. And all of a sudden, this like 14 year old girl comes up to the front of the mobile home from inside wearing a pair of like Daisy Dukes, like a flannel shirt tied up in the front, pigtails. And she was chewing, like smacking her gum, but like playing with it with her fingers at the same time. What? Like the most cliche, the most cliche, like farmer's daughter from Alabama you've ever seen in your entire life, except it was in Northern um, Wyoming. So anyway, Mabel, Mabel comes to the front door and we said, uh, uh, well, we're here to take a tour of the world's deepest hand dug well. And she says, that'll be four fifty for each of you. And so like one of us hands her $18. And she just like stares at us a minute and she says, no, each of you has to pay $4 and 50 cents. And we're like, yeah, well, there's four of us. So here's $18. Oh no. And she's like, he says, no, it, each person has to pay just to take a tour of the well, $4 and 50 cents. And finally it, it clicked that, that, that we, we had to each pay her separately. So we each pay, I mean, I'm not making fun of her. I mean, it was just, it was adorable, right? So we, we paid her the four dollars and fifty cents each, or whatever, five dollars. But that changed. And she's like, "All right, come with me." And we walk around the back of her mobile home, and this is this right next to that kind of brick structure. There's a ramp that goes down, like it goes down like five or seven feet one direction, and then like seven feet the other direction. So maybe it went down like fifteen feet. And at the bottom, there's just like all you see like this kind of brick wall, right? So okay. maybe I'll walk us down to the bottom of the ramp. We get down to the bottom, and she says. My great, 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 great uncle dug this well with his bare hands. Thank y'all for coming. And then she leaves. Wow. That was, that was, the, that was the tour. And we're sitting here and then she was gone and we were at the bottom of like the thing and we're like, Oh my God. That was like by far the most amazing thing we'd ever seen in our entire lives. And, uh, we, we got back into the car. And, and by the way, like it was the best. 450 I've ever spent because I've been telling the story for 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the the funniest thing about it was was there's two things. Number one, like we like all of us 
have so much admiration for this family because they figured out like they they're making it like they're probably on disability social security and everything but they're also making an extra like fifteen thousand dollars like off the grid off this idea to put up a sign for the tour of the well and uh they're they're making it right but the funniest thing was is, is we're, we're we're totally convinced that this is a family business so we, we kept saying for like years, we're like, someday, Maybell, this is all going to be yours. <laughs> <laughs> That's they, someone like you and me are definitely going to stop at the world's deepest hand dug well or deepest. Yeah. Hand dug well. Like that's it's brilliant. Ghetto tourist trap. That's oh how God. you put it. Right. Oh, I, it's they're, 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 I stopped all of them. I do. I, I don't miss these. I, I just got told that I was, I missed when I was in Iowa that I could have seen the world's largest sign. The world's and, largest and what? I, I, the world's largest frying pan. Frying pan. Wow. Yeah. And the person that was telling me about it, because they have a big old placard right next to the world's biggest frying pan. It costs like four or five bucks to see the world's biggest frying pan. But the person who's talking, they're like, yeah, you can cook like 1,200 eggs at once or 500 burgers at the same time. And they were like, oh, excited about it. Oh, yeah. Or the funniest things I've heard is that, I, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I read. Like you heard like the cliche, the world's largest ball of twine. Yeah. Okay, well, apparently the thing I read said that, that there's two of them out there. And they've been like battling for like the past 50 years to <laughs> be the world's largest ball of wine. And uh, I guess one of them is bigger in size, but the other one they think weighs more <laughs> or something like that. Jeez. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, I, I guess you, this is two rival twine balls for like the most cliche tourist traps. And uh, they've been around for like 50 years and they're still adding to their balls of wine. I can uh, only hope that like Netflix or Hulu or something gets a hold of that and makes like a documentary about it, so I can just sit on the couch and watch it. I yeah, I, I would I would probably buy the DVD. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So is that? I love I love weird people. I love weird. I love weird. That's all. If it's weird, I'm I'm a fan. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Is that something that you guys kind of do, like on the tour, to to pass the time and just kind of? I mean, because when you're on the road, I, I understand. Just when you're on the road for X amount of days out of the year, it just gets old. I mean, yeah, you're doing what you love doing, and you definitely have a good time when you're on stage or you're on the disc golf course. Like, but being in it's not like you're traveling in a in a tour bus or you're not like going to the airport and jumping in a jet like you're in a van with other dudes and you smell and you're driving stupid amounts of hours through the day through the night to get to the next thing and it's just it takes a toll on you so what do you guys is is that one of the things that you do what other kind of stuff do you do to keep your mind off being on the road well, I mean, for me, I, I, I mean, I was running, I mean, I ran 250 events. So yeah, I was, I pretty much went nonstop. I mean, I, I, uh, an average event, um, I drove for four hours and then the event itself took five hours. And then I spent about three hours per event, uh, scheduling, marketing, promoting emails, pictures, videos, uploads, merchandising, trophies and, and all that stuff. So. 
for me, um, I spent about 12 hours per event and did 250 events in 400 days or something like that. So like I, I was pretty like pretty booked solid. Yeah. Um. Uh. Like it's not emotionally sustainable. I told you it was like it was you know it was fun but hard. But a lot of it is like yeah. I mean the way I think it's like anybody like if you were a stand up comedian it's like you, you when you're on the road you do all this for that like 20 minutes on stage. Right. And so like that's kind that's kind of what I was doing. Like I, I would do all that because when I got my 30 minutes or 45 minutes to work with my special needs families. That's what I got out of it. Um, yeah. I was like, I, I made barely enough to, to cover travel expenses. I mean, I, I, I wasn't compensated for any of my time. Um, like I never had a bank account the whole, the whole time. Um, when I said that's not true, I opened a bank account last winter and it took up for a little bit, but I didn't have any money. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it was, it was all for me, it was all voluntary. I had no money to do anything while I was traveling. So, and that's a that that's a big thing that people don't understand about like what you do and what people at tour do like most of the time generally unless you're like Motley Crue or Kiss or you know a band that sells out arenas and stuff that's been around for a long time you're not making tons of millions of thousands of dollars traveling around the country like it's it's rough and like you said i use the money that i got at this thing to get to the next thing where i proceeded to use that money to get to the next thing you never that's yeah it's for the love (laughs) yeah that's basically how it works and like every single time i would get a little bit ahead you know your tire blows out yeah so i say a little bit ahead I mean, like a couple hundred dollars a day. Well, like for instance, you know, like the discs and shirts that I gave out to everybody for their their twenty seven dollars, I paid for those. Right. Like I didn't. Those weren't donated to me. The discs and shirts that I gave out to all my special needs players, I paid for all those. Yeah. Um, all the you know the other expenses of traveling and this and that. And so, um, yeah, but but you know, I'm not complaining. It's like it's no different than someone who has has a, a you know a regular like like a minimum wage job or something like that who's who's hand to mouth it's not like you know it's not like i was starving i mean i ate every day um right but, but you know probably 40 percent of the people like you know they call it the working poor right i mean like probably what, like 40 percent of the people in this country are pretty much in the same boat i mean they they get their their paycheck they pay their rent um then the next paychecks where they pay all their bills and the next paycheck they pay their rent and they buy their food and i, I you know no different that's true. That's very true. I it's so uh, yeah. I've been in the same boat, just enough to enough to you know get to the next city and put something in your mouth, and yeah. have a pack of smokes, and that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's basically that, that's basically it. I mean, when I run events every single day, I would get, I would start to get ahead, but as soon as I did, there was, there was something always came up. Like it, like it never actually like. I, I never was able to do. That's why, like, I've changed my formatting for the the future events. I'm not running blue power events the same way I have been because, like, I can't I can't keep doing it this way. It's just too hard. So I'm making changes to actually try to make a little bit more money. Gotcha. So, but 
how many of these blue power events do you have lined up coming up? Well, actually, no, I'm actually not running actual blue power events anymore. Oh, you're not. Oh, um, my I'm, bad. No, no, they're going to be, well, they're going to be different. I'm still doing blue power. So I'm still doing my special needs classes. No, my future events are now going to be traditional disc golf tournaments. So all my future, I should say all, but I'm trying something out. And my future events are going to be, uh, it's a singles tournament. You are going to get a hundred percent payback. Um, in the pro division of entry fees, amateurs are going to get 100% payback in prizes, you know, like a traditional disc golf tournament. And, um, uh, but before each tournament, I'm still going to offer a special needs class, um, oh. for free. And I'm still going to offer a juniors class for free. So I'm still, I'm still teaching my free classes and, but I'm not doing any fundraising for those. I'm just doing those of my own time, my own choice. Um, and the events themselves, because you can make a little bit of money running a disc golf tournament, especially like with merchandising and selling products. I'm hoping that the the fact that I'm actually given a hundred percent payback type of event is going to bring out increased numbers of players that will then in turn buy more stuff, and, and I can actually start to do a little better. So that's my theory. Um, uh, the the thing that I'm doing differently, like I've I mean, I've done this my whole life, and like especially like in disc golf and everywhere else. I'm I'm always the, like the first to try something new, and I'm going to try. What my plan is is I'm going to start running PDJ tournaments when I travel. I'm going to run PDJ tournaments seven days a week, oh, wow. and I'm basically going to be like I'm going to be like, hey, I'm going to be in Yukai, uh, uh, California, on Tuesday, May fourth, and I'm running a two round PDJ tournament on a Tuesday, all day. Which no one's like ever. I mean, occasionally there's been like weekday tournaments, like the Triple Crown has experimented, but not like running a tournament every single day, like on weekdays and weekends. And I'm just going to see how it goes. So is this just like a, was this like a Scott Stokely mad scientist act? Like you just one day you were sitting there and you're like, seven days a week, I have to do that. Let's go now. Yes, that's exactly what it was. I did my research. I love it. I'm estimating I'm going to lose about 40% of players. But a lot of towns have um, people who are unemployed. They have college students. They have self-employed people. They've got stay-at-home parents. They've got people with cool bosses. They've got people willing to take vacation time. Students. Um, there, There is a wide range of players, people who work nights or weekends. And there's a, so I'm, I think that there's a wide range of players with enough notice, they're going to come out. Um, whether or not that's true, I'll find out. I like doing things that no one's really done before. That's interesting. That's kind of something I, really, I enjoy. That's interesting because you put it like that. Because like, uh, probably like six, seven years ago, I worked third shift for years, and disc golfing was my favorite. I was at the course a good eight to ten hours a day, almost every day just playing and playing and getting better, working on my game. But me working third shift, I can never make it to any tournaments. I can never make it to actually compete and play with other people at my level. I just had to hope somebody would show up during the middle of the morning or in the late afternoon to just to throw with. And the idea of seven days a week like that, that really... If I had something like that five to seven years ago, 
I definitely would have played in more tournaments than I have now. Well, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. Um, and something even like occurred to me is like because like uh, I'm right now planning a two week trip around um, where I'm going to run 14 events in two weeks. Um, no, I mean I'm going to run 14 events in 16 days. I have two days off in the middle on, on driving days around Washington, Oregon, and um, Utah. And it, it's, it occurred to me that, because the these are going to be PDJ sanctioned, but in the future, that I'm going to have these PDJ sanctioned. And it, it just occurred to me that what I'm doing, other players could take a two-week trip and just play all these tournaments. Right. Like, again, like, I, like, I didn't even think about that when I came up with this idea, but when these are all, like, PDJ tournaments, and if you can make money playing, if you're, you know, a thousand-rated pro player, you could make a you could make enough money to live on these little one day tournaments as as I'm running them seven days a week, right? So most definitely. Um, so I'm thinking that, that that might actually start to build my own little like little mini tours as we go. But it's just an experiment. But the, the biggest reason I'm doing it is just because I can make a little bit of money when I run events, but two days on, five days off is it's hard because you have five days where you're spending money and not making anything so right if i can actually do these the days a week i think i can actually get my head above water for the first time in several years so that's my goal that's really cool I we mean, will find out i will know in several months if it works or if i'm crazy i have no idea you you're probably crazy but i really hope it still works and i think it really has the potential to work it it sounds really as as a person that's been in that position. It's just that I wish that would have something like that would have been around years ago. Yeah, we'll we'll find out. Um, <laughs> I, I was actually talking to my daughter, like that, you know, that, that uh, just like in my soapbox again. But but fear of failure is probably the single greatest thing that holds people back from from being great. You know? Yeah. Like. I, you know, you have to be willing to fail. And like, I, like, I really don't give a shit if this idea doesn't work because if it doesn't, I will have another idea next week. Yeah. And so, and the next one will work, you know, but you, you know, you have to be willing to like throw it out there and, um, you have to be willing to, uh, like not allow other people's opinions to affect you because I've already received feedback from people that told me that this is a totally stupid idea. Like, this is not going to work. And I'm like, awesome then then i'm glad that means you're not doing then you're not doing it competing against me exactly yeah cool thanks for your input move on i i hate how much i kind of hate i love the internet but i hate how much of a of a like little man syndrome it's given people like everybody just jumps on everybody for everything now and they hide behind their their mouse and their keyboard and they can say mean rude things for no reason and get away with it and it's just it's not fair and it's not right to do to people trolls are the worst and you're gonna have that unfortunately regardless what you're doing now if it's on the internet someone's gonna hate it and someone's gonna go over the top and hate on anything that you do oh god there's people that, that 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 are like have attacked what I'm doing with blue power. Like have that's like it's some that's like amazing. It's it's mind boggling. Really but, exactly. Um, what? I like just really like you how do you how do they even 
find justification in doing that. It, it doesn't make any sense. You're trying to do something good for the community, trying to do something no, good. It's just, yeah, it's classic. It is. Well, my, my theory is, okay, this is another old person thing, but I, I got this theory that people's happiness, like when people, people can be happy alone, but when they are around other people who are more successful than them, have more money than them, who are thinner than them, right? It doesn't matter what it is. The, the unhappiness comes from the gap between them, themselves, and the people around them. Like a person who's poor around other poor people is going to be a lot happier than that same person around rich people. Because when you, when you see the gap, then you, you have to see where you are, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, I think what happens is, is that people, because that's, that's, that's pain, right? I mean, you're not, you're, you're, that's, that's a painful, unhappy feeling. So there's two things you can do to, to try to deal with that pain. The first is the hard one, which is to raise yourself up and try to raise yourself up to be like the person that, that was on the other side of the gap. You know, for instance, if you're, um, if you are overweight, maybe, and it's hard to become healthy to match that other person, right? Right. Um, to, to, to that gap. The easier thing to do, if most people do, is they try to knock that other person down to them. So a, a poor person will like see someone who's rich and go, oh, well, money doesn't buy happiness. I bet they're miserable with all that money, right? Or, uh, you know, knocking someone for being healthy physically healthy when if you're not. Um, and I think it's the same thing with people that like, if they haven't achieved much in their life, they want to knock people who are trying to achieve. I mean, every, I mean, there's so many people that will squash someone's dreams. Like, you know, I'm going to open up a, I'm going to open up a coffee shop and you have someone who's never achieved anything in their life go, Oh, that'll fail. Most coffee shops fail. You'll never make it. Yeah. It's like, it's like what they're basically doing is they're trying to, to, make that gap smaller by by knocking that person down because if that person is successful it reminds them of how far they are from that and so again i know i'm being all like preachy here but i think that's i think that's why people want to knock down people who are successful or people who are good or people who are anything that they're not um it's it's less painful to them if they can knock the person down to them and easier than trying to like raise themselves up yeah i was there always- we go now i'm all now, grandpa stuff is all. I'm not a grandpa. All freaky. Oh, I you know I was always told something similar. You know, it's like if if you're ever if you're ever jealous of somebody or somebody's just on your nerves, the best way to get back at them is to be successful and to do something that you want to do, and to just to go with it and be happy. Don't worry about what other people are saying to you. Don't worry about what other people have. It's about, it's, it's not all about you, but your life is about you and making your decisions. And if you want to be a scuba diver and that's, what's truly going to make you happy, then go sign up for scuba lessons right now. Cause you should be happy in doing that. Absolutely. And, uh, and don't be afraid to fail. That's the biggest thing. I mean, I forget what some famous person said: the, the way to succeed more is to fail more. Yeah, it's you know, which is just, I wish I had written it. That's a really good line. 
I, I, it's not mine. The light bulb wasn't made on its first try. It's just every like you said you said yeah. it earlier. If it doesn't work, cool. I know it's something that doesn't work. I'll have another idea tomorrow morning. Like it's it's just people that create things are always creating things. You don't stop. It's it's amazing. I guess I'll let you get going to your night though. Um I have right. plenty well, I, of content. I, no, no, no. I super appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Um, I have, uh, I'm, yes, I'm going to go in or out. 10 o'clock. Might as well, might as well, might as well eat my, my noodles. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, it's, it was, it was a pleasure. I've always wanted to, to talk to you, man. For sure. No, I appreciate it.